0: God loves you as you are, not as you should be. Perhaps M. Griffin, uh, an author, says, Perhaps God loves us most when we fail. And then try again. Right? God loves you as you are, not as you should be. This morning, I believe this when we gather together. I believe that Jesus is in this place. I believe that as we're here singing, and now as we're here going to open the word. God's going to nudge you this morning. God's going to stir something up in your heart this morning. Uh, at our church, we like to say, God's going to turn up the volume in your heart. I'll be talking this morning, and all of a sudden, the volume's going to get turned up in your heart, and you're going to be thinking, Ooh, that, that that's me. I, I needed to hear that this morning, right? I guess the question is, are you ready for that? Are you ready to hear God speak to you this morning? I love it in the book of Hebrews. It says, when you hear God's voice, because you will if you're open to him, because he's always speaking, the Father's always at work. When you hear God's voice, what does it say? It says, do not harden your heart. Meaning the upside down part of that would be soften your heart, open your heart. As he stirs, as he moves, as he nudges, as he touches, as he turns up the volume this morning, I believe that God wants to encourage you this morning. Some of you need to be strengthened. Some of you need to be uh, comforted. Some of you need to just a little little nudge. Uh, Some of you need to be reminded, uh, if you've lost your way, that there's always a way back. Some of you need to hear what Erwin McManus at Mosaic in L.A., he says, there's this wonderful side effect about following Jesus. You get better at living your life in a healthy, life-giving way. And it's so simple, but it's true. There's a wonderful side effect when we follow Jesus. We actually get better at doing life, at living life, the way God dreams for us to live. We become the best version of ourselves. That's the side effect of following Jesus Christ. So before I jump into this message, I um, some people like to know that besides being a pastor or an expression of being a pastor in Santa Barbara, is I get to do a lot of weddings. I've kind of fell into it, uh, but people find it interesting that I get to do a lot of um, unusual kinds of people's weddings. How many of you, when you were a kid, you watched that TV show "Saved by the Bell?" Anybody watch that? Okay. Anybody remember Kelly Capal? I think it was Kelly Capal. Her name's Tiffany Amber Thiessen. I got to do Tiffany's wedding. Actually, she's become friends with us. Uh, Zach in Saved by the Bell, Mark Paul Gossler. I got to do his wedding. Some of you are Backstreet Boy fans. Nick Carter. I got to do his wedding. But maybe uh, Fergie from the Black Eyed Peas uh, got to renew her vows. Um, Robbie Williams, somebody from the UK, right? Nobody here knows who Robbie Williams is. I didn't even know who Robbie Williams was, but I got to do Robbie Williams' wedding down in Beverly Hills. Probably the most famous wedding I got to do was a TV wedding. And uh, it was a rock star. We'll show the picture here. See if anybody knows who that is. That's Gene Simmons from the rock band Kiss. And... uh, I got to know him, and uh, got to do his wedding, and it's just so interesting. I would say that weddings have become the number one expression uh, of God using me to draw people to himself. We probably have today 20 couples at our church that now are walking with Jesus because I, I, I got a foothold in their life through officiating their wedding, and it was like, he's kind of a normal guy. and 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 then beginning to have conversations about how to have a strong and healthy marriage. And anybody that's married here knows that, man, marriage can be hard work, and we need help, and we need more than just our own resources. And God has used that Uh, in our church, this whole area or expression for me doing weddings. It's such a privilege. It's an honor to get to do it and officiate uh, weddings in Santa Barbara. And actually, I've I've been able to do it all over the world. I've done weddings in Rome, done weddings in Turks and Caicos, done weddings in Mexico last year. Um, So it's it's God's blessing on my life, but it's also God using me. That's the way my evangelistic gift gets used often, which is really fun. This morning, um, my talk is going to be rooted in a passage. If you have a Bible... You can uh, just put your finger in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And uh, I want to begin by, by going after this question. What is a real man? What's a real man? We live in a culture that uh, continues to give us pictures of what a real man is like. You're sitting here this morning and in your own mind. You have a picture of what a real man is. Might be accurate. It might be inaccurate. I think we live in a culture that continues to lie to us, and we buy in to the lies of what it means to be a real man. But uh, let me let me let me throw up a photo or two. Uh, here's the first photo. That's a real man, Robert De Niro, Deer Hunter. You know, he's an outdoors guy. He's got his rifle. He's independent. He's self-sufficient. And we think that's that's what it means to be a real man. If I was a real man, I'd be more like him. He's got his beanie going on, right? But some of us are like, no, here's another photo. This is a real man. James Bond, man. Under pressure, cool, calm, collected. Women dig him. Uh, you know, he's just, he's also independent. He's also self-sufficient. He doesn't need other people. He doesn't need other men in his life. Uh, Now here's yet another picture, Tom Brady, super hot wife, supermodel, Super Bowl champion, quarterback, athlete, and in our minds we go, now that's a real man, you know, the athlete, the hot wife, right? Or some of us go, no, the real man is, and here's the last one, (laughs) he speaks... He can speak Russian and French. I love that. (laughs) The most interesting man in the world. But what about for you? How would you describe, how would you fill in the blank, real men, dot, dot, dot? I have a, a guy in my life who is a mentor. He's an author. His name's Gordon Dalby. He's in Santa Barbara. Here's what he says. Real men are men who are real real men are men who are real what does that mean what does that mean for you real men are men who are real it takes courage to be real it takes courage to be authentic it takes courage to be transparent it takes courage to be real with other to be real with your wife, to be real with others. This morning, we're going to talk about what it means to be a real man. I think this idea of, and these pictures have kind of um, laid it out for us, we kind of are hustling for greatness, and we just think we gotta, you know, we gotta, we gotta have, I I said this at at another, at another talk, if I hear another, youth pastor or pastor talk about their super hot wife one more time. It drives me crazy every time I hear somebody speak because it reinforces this culture. Like if you have a super hot, it's great that you think your wife's super hot, but that doesn't make you a man, does it? Or all your stuff, possessions, man, it's the car, the house. Is, is that the guy? You're that guy, man. That's a real man. Is Does that does that make a guy a real man if he's got a big house, if he's got a great car, if he goes on the best vacations, he wears the cool gear? Or sports, right? We measure greatness. We hustle. We talk about our stories. I, I almost, how many guys, you know, I almost played college, I almost made it to the pros. I'm thinking, if I meet another guy who almost made it to the pros. Let me tell you, I played hockey in Canada and I got cut. I didn't make it. I I almost didn't make it. I tried to make it, but I wasn't good enough. That's being real. I got cut. I wasn't good enough. Some of us, we hustle for greatness through our kids. We brag about, oh, my God, my kid's in club sports. My kid's all-star. Hey, my kid's eight years old, and he's on his way to Stanford on a scholarship. You know, it's like we are... Always, kind of, especially where I live in Santa Barbara, I mean, it's amazing the story. Oh, my kids got straight A's. My kids this. My kids that. But we're not real about. And you know what? My kids struggling to ha- to make friends. My kids struggling academically. My kids struggling with faith. That's being real. But but men, we tend to live up here. We want to impress each other, and we bought into this whole lie. Well, here, according to Jesus, we have it backwards. As you listen to these words, I want you to keep in mind this statement. I think it's an Andy Stanley statement. I love this. Jesus wants more for you than from you. Do you believe that? That's that's such a great line. Jesus wants more for you than from you. So let me read this passage for us. I have it up on the screen. I think I popped this up in the the message. Mark chapter 9... They came to Capernaum, and when he was safe at home, he asked them, meaning his his disciples, what were you discussing on the road? So just stop there. I love how Jesus just is paying attention, and then he asks good questions. He asks spiritual questions. He asks and talks about things that matter, right? Right? We're going to talk more about that. Look at verse 34. The silence was deafening. Why? Because they'd been arguing with one another over who among them was the greatest. He sat down and summoned the twelve. So, you want first place? Then take the last place. Be the servant. Of all. He put a child in the middle of the room. What's he doing? Why would he do that? Put a child in the middle of the room. Push the pause button there before the next phrase. Put a child in the middle of the room and stood back and watched and waited. For what? We're going to talk about that. Then, cradling the little one in his arms, he said, Whoever embraces one of these children as I do embraces me and far more than me, the God who sent me. Becoming a real man. Three questions. Three questions this morning that only you can answer. Three questions I'm going to ask you from this text that only you can answer. Number one Will I gather regularly with other guys? That's what Jesus did. He had disciples. He had friends. He had Peter, James, and John, the inner three that he kept kind of sneaking away with those three. It was important to him to be with other guys, to share his life, to build into these guys. The question that I think about is, is I, as I read this is he was asking questions, he's engaged with them. And he's talking about what? Is he talking about the Rams? Is he talking about the Raiders? Is he talking about the Cubs? He's talking about things that matter. He's paying attention to their lives, and then he's asking, what were you you guys talking about back there? That's one question he asks. And then he sits down. So you want first place? There's another question. You know? And I guess the question I want you to think about this morning is, are you gathering together regularly with other men? I was with eight pastors right before I got off. Of, I was on a sailboat with eight pastors. We call it a pastor's roundtable. Many of us have been friends for over 30 years. Uh, a few of us planted churches together, uh, went through the training and everything about 20 years ago. And what we've done is we've developed this routine where once a year, we get together on a Sunday night through a Thursday, so four days together. We usually are up in Sun River, Oregon, sometimes Montana. We've been all over the place. But this year, it was just this week, uh, we were on a 77-foot sailboat. It was awesome. Yeah, it was amazing. And this is the 12th or 13th year in a row that we've done this. And it's eight pastors. We're all, we're all serving in churches. One guy now is a superintendent of a conference Uh, Another guy just left the pastor, but he's the campus pastor at a retirement community. But we get together and we share our lives. We talk about stuff that matters. Each guy gets half hour, hour uh, during our week together to, to give us the most important update in your life personally since we last met. Give the most important update in your life professionally What's going on in your ministry? And then, what's the greatest challenge in your life? And how can we bless you and pray for you? And so here we were just the last four days and talking. I mean, we're sharing ministry ideas and all that stuff too. But then but then we get to pray over each other. And throughout the week, we're talking about things that matter. I put together this little uh, tool uh I'm a a, a gatherer of questions. I love questions. I call them excavation questions. I have, I think right now, it's 489 excavation questions. And they are questions that kind of are all over the map. But what they do is they take you deeper. Excavation, you're digging deeper. So we'll be sitting around. We were sitting around on the boat, and Gary Godini goes, Ireland, man, pull out your excavation questions. And what we do is we just go around, you pick a number between 1 and 484. Give me 372. You know, it might say, tell us about your first car. Okay, that's easy, right? But then that guy tells us about his first car. Next, hey, give me 22. What does love require of you right now? And then that guy goes into how his wife's struggling and how he needs to adjust his life to come alongside her, Right? Uh, And on and on and on. But questions that take us deeper. Man, we have a hard time connecting. Some of us are more reserved, introverted, afraid, timid. Uh, And so this just for, for me, I found it's a tool. You could come up with that. It's just so easy. I use it at Thanksgiving. I use it with my family. I use it in every men's group that I'm in. i got four different men's groups. I always end it with, hey, let's do the excavation questions. Just pick a number between 1 and a hundred, one and 400, whatever. But maybe for you, as you think about growing with other guys, it's about becoming more like Jesus and talking about things that matter. I've found that guys can get together and we can talk about everything but... Jesus. Everything but our spiritual life. Everything but our temptations, right? So maybe the question this morning is the first one. Will I gather regularly with other guys? And if not, why not? What's holding you back? I'm in a group. Actually, like I said, I'm in several groups. I have a picture of a group of us. Do you got that one? Of us in the snow? There you go. This is a group of uh, four of the guys in this group. We've been friends for 30 years. They helped me plant Ocean Hills Church. We were all at Montecito Covenant before it. And I said to them, you know what? We do not need another. we We don't need to keep meeting in the same Bible study year after year. It's time that we pass the baton on. It's time that we begin to reproduce. And so the definition that we use is we don't want to help men become better Christians. That's not our mission. That's not what we're about. I don't get passionate about that. What we are about is helping men become self initiating, key phrase. Self, I'm not creating a program for you. I want you to become a self initiating, reproducing, wholehearted follower of Jesus. Self initiating, reap. If the church, if our churches were filled with, and our culture and our churches were, about making disciples that's what Dallas Willard says the most important question for us men in the church is do you have a plan for making disciples and does your plan work I can't answer that for you but that plan or that question again the power of questions it convicts me do I have a plan for making self-initiating if it's if your plan's dependent on creating programs that's not going to last. I want men who are, I'm not waiting for you to tell me what to do. You're taking initiative. You're saying, I want to invest in other men. I want to i want to pour my life into other men. I want to disciple. I want to mentor next generation leaders, right? And so four of the guys that were on that screen, we, we, we decided several years ago, let's create, we call it a four by four group. We handpick four guys. We do a once a month, three-hour dinner together, and we have big themes for the course of a year, 12, 12 months. But in order to be part of the group, you have to be willing to go on a road trip together. I've just found in my life I could sit in Starbucks with guys for a year and get only go so far, but when I get away with guys... When I break away with guys, when I get in a van, when I get on an airplane, when I get into the wilderness, when I get in a lake, when I get, and in fact, a friend of mine, a mentor of mine said, men bond, this is what he said, men bond when they get cold, lost, naked, and scared together. So that's why I said, Hey, I'm going to devote my life to getting men and taking men where they haven't gone before. That's become my motto in my men's ministry taking men where they haven't gone before physically. So we push. I've taken guys to New Zealand to do the Milford trek, I've taken guys to do the Inca Trail in Peru. Uh, That picture that was up there, we took these guys, we said, Here's the road trip. We're going to get in a van, a church van, at 11 o'clock at night, and we are going to drive all night to Moab, Utah, from Santa Barbara. And we're going to go to the Arches National Park, and we're going to play, and we're going to hike, uh, and we're going to stay at this hole-in-the-wall place called Grandma's House or something like that. And they were like, why, why are we going to do that? Why can't there, There's mountains right here in Santa Barbara an hour away. Let's just do that. Why, don't I, why didn't I go, yeah, let's just do that. It's just an hour. Because I'm looking for an excuse. When you spend 12 to 14 hours in a church van together, you got memories. I mean, we're five minutes into our trip and two guys light up Cuban cigars without the windows open. That's a problem. Hey, guys, you need to be more considerate, man. Open those windows. And then we were spending these days together. We got up at sunrise. That's a picture of me, and you can see a guy on the left. We were just jumping in this arch, playing together. Men, we've stopped playing. We've stopped playing. We've stopped gathering. We just kind of, I don't know, we got busy. We're responsible. We got our job, and we've stopped getting away with each other and it's got to get beyond Starbucks. You got to get away. Like, this is so important. I want you to know that. Getting away today, this weekend, it's really important. Fuller Seminary, we're, we're talking about doing a partnership with Fuller, and I just met with their director of formation groups. Here's what he said. He says, of all the research, current research out there, we've discovered that men grow, and they're formed, their hearts are formed in Christ three in three ways and it's all about regular regular spiritual practices listening to god through opening the scriptures and listening through prayer so having a a daily time with god could be through fasting could be through practicing sabbath it could be through giving and but regular practices the second was regular gathering with other guys weekly, monthly, but regular. Even this annual trip that I do with these other pastors, we're texting, talking, but getting away for five days over the years, that's been, for me, such a life-giving experience. So regular practices, regular gathering with guys, and here's the other thing Fuller discovered, regular retreats. Something happens, God moves when we break away, go on road trips, come to Mount Hermon, God meets us. God does some heart surgery in us that for whatever reason, it doesn't happen in our regular routine. We're not able to listen to God. So the question is, for some of you, you're going, I get this. You're preaching to me. I get it. Others of you are going, the volume's getting turned up and you're saying, yeah, I need this in my life. What's holding you back from getting together with other guys? Second is, and by the way, tonight I'm going to talk more about this. We're going to to press deeper into that. But here's the second question, verse 36 in this passage. We read that Jesus put a child in the middle of the room. And then he stepped back. What's that about? I've read this text so many times and that jumped out at me. Jesus wanted to see who would pay attention to the one who... Was insignificant. Jesus wanted to see who would go first. Jesus wanted to see who would go first and care for and pick up the invisible one, the insignificant one, the little one. Isn't it true that this whole idea of going first, there's something novel about that? It's hard, it takes courage. But we respect the guys who go first, don't we? You know, like something challenging, like who's going to go? I'm going to wait and see uh, who goes first. I'm not going first, right? We respect guys who go first. So this group I was telling you about, we call it a four by four. One night, we bring every now and then, we bring in an outside voice, an outside presence, person. I brought in a guy named Dr. Gordy Hess. Some of you may or may not know him. He was a Presbyterian minister, family minister for years, then went back, got his PhD, and became a family counselor. And for about 10 years, part of my own self-care as a pastor is to have, I I, I see a counselor once a month, just as part of my own. want to be, deal with my blind spots, deal with my weaknesses. I want to become more self-aware as a leader. And I remember Gordy shared something with me and I wanted him to share it with these guys so we brought him in and one of the guys asked this question what does it mean to be the spiritual leader in your home this guy was probably 32 years old he was a new dad and this group that we were mentoring were young guys in their 30s younger dads and that was the question what does it mean to be the spiritual leader in your home and here's what Gordon has said he said, it does not mean that you are a dictator at home. does not mean that you get to boss your wife and kids around and tell them what to do. That's not what it means. He says, but here's what it does mean. It means that you are, and here's the phrase, the initiator of grace. You are the initiator of grace. What does that mean? One of the guys asked, I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? He goes, you're the first to serve your wife and your kids. You're the first to make sacrifices. You're the first to initiate reconciliation when there's a misunderstanding and hurt feelings. When there's an ouch, you go first and say, I'm sorry. When the house is a disaster, you go first and you go clean the toilet. You vacuum the house. When you come home from a busy day, you go first and you ask her how, your day, how her day was. And you listen rather than going, hey man, I just I'm, I'm, uh, I had a busy day too. And check out emotionally. When it's time for dinner, you go first and you put your phone away. You turn it off. You leave it in a different room. And you be fully present. That's what it means to be the initiator of grace. And I'm going to tell you that for me... I'm a slow learner. I'm selfish. And I've been learning this lesson about what it means to be the initiator of grace for years. I'm going to tell you a story that um, God used in my life to change my life. So our church is involved with Team World Vision. We participate in the L.A. Marathon every year to raise money for clean water for kids in the DR Congo um, and we have a strong partnership with the covenant in the Congo. My wife and I have been to the Congo. I taught at a pastor's conference there. It's, it's, it's a hard place to even visit. Um, and so every year we bring in this guy. His name's John Huddle, and he works for Team World Vision, and he gives this inspirational talk, and then he has you sign up. Like, you're like, who's going to do the L.A. Marathon? And, I mean, we usually get 25 to 30, 40 people that say yes, and uh, if you want to do the half marathon, you can do the half. But so the first year he came, I I didn't want to do it. But I felt like he said, man, unless the senior pastor, lead pastor does it, a lot of people aren't going to sign up. But if you lead by example, we're going to get others to do it. And I'm like, dude, I don't want to do the L.A. marathon. If I'm going to do a marathon, I want to do something a little sexier than L.A. I want to go to Paris or London or New York and I felt God convict me and say, that again, that's your ego, that's selfish, do it for these kids. So, the first year I did the LA Marathon, it was a great experience. We raised about 100 grand for kids in the DR Congo. Two years later, he makes this pitch, and I'm like, I've already done it, I'm not doing it. And I see my wife stay behind. She's sitting in the seat with that group that says, I'm gonna do it. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, my wife, by the way, I used to give her Nikes and workout clothes for Christmas for like 10 years. And she finally said, quit giving me that stuff. I hate to sweat. I hate working out. You know, love me for who I am, not for who you want me to be. You know. So now I see her and I'm like, oh, my gosh, she's going to do the L.A. Marathon. This is amazing. So I go up to her after the thing and I go, are you going to run the L.A. Marathon? She goes, no, I'm going to walk it oh, okay. Um, And she goes, and I'm not going to do the whole one. I'm going to do the half. I'm like, oh, okay. And then I said this, do you want me to do it with you? And here's what she said. She said, yeah, I'd love for you to do it with me rather than me doing it with you. And there's a difference. We've been married 30 years. This was just four years ago. There's a difference between me doing it with her. She would say, most of our married life, I've been doing stuff with you. The initiator of grace. Am I willing to come alongside her? Am I willing to go at her pace, support her dreams, right? So every Saturday morning, Team World Vision has the group runs. Everybody's out running, and I'm—I like—I'm actually doing the New York City Marathon in a couple weeks, and I'm ready to run, man. And and we're walking. So every Saturday morning, we're walking, and uh, I go. And this is honest. To tr- this is a true story. I go, hey, you want to just try jogging a little bit? And she said, no, but you go ahead if you want. I know you probably want to run. Go ahead. No. I walk with her, walk with her. Week after week after week. So the time comes, and here we are, L.A. Marathon. I raised a little more money by wearing that little skirt. That's why I got that on. <laughs> somebody, somebody dared me to wear that tutu, and they gave, they gave us an extra 2000 bucks. So I said, hey, I'm willing to lose my dignity to raise money for these kids. But here's what happened. Here we are, and uh, it's this whole idea of will you go first? Will you go first to support others, to serve others, to serve your family? And on that day, we, it was one of the highlights of our marriage. So we're walking together, and I'm not kidding. We're walking, and all of a sudden, my wife starts jogging. I'm like, whoa, where Where are you going? I go, are we running this thing? And then she was just so messing with me. She, she'd run for about three minutes, and she'd walk. Oh, are we walking? We running? And it was, God was just testing me. God was growing me, saying, this isn't about you, John. This is about you walking alongside her. This is about you being with her, not her being with you. And for 13 miles, we walked, we ran, we jogged. We get to the, the, the finish line of the L.A. Marathon. The last 250 yards, nobody's walking Nobody at the LA Marathon's walk in the final home stretch. So of course, I I just can't help myself. Hey, you want to you want to jog it in? She says, no, but you go ahead. I know you want to. I'll meet you at the finish line. Go for it. (laughs) Right? Everything in me wanted to sprint it in. But God was growing me. I was learning what it means to be the initiator of grace, to make life not about me, to make or to be be the be the guy that says, I'm here to support you. I'm here to be with you, to be alongside you. That's the point here. And we ended up finishing, and that's that's our photo. But the question is, will I go first? Will will you go first? Will you become an initiator of grace in your workplace? Maybe you're the CEO. Maybe you're the boss. Maybe you're the manager. Will you go first at serving your team, at sacrificing for your team, at saying, no, you, get, you take that vacation time. I'll, I'll go around you. Most of us are like, no, man, I'm the boss. You go around me. The way of Jesus is upside down from the way of this world. What it means to be a real man is you go first and you be the initiator of grace. And then here's the third part of this text that I see. It's verse 36 and 37. After he put this child in the middle of the room, and then it says he cradled the little one in his arms. And he said, whoever embraces one of these children as I do embraces me. And far more than me, the God who sent me. Of course you know this, but I'll remind you that in the first century culture, in Jesus's place in that ancient Near East, right? Kids were what? They were invisible. They were unimportant. They were kind of a nuisance in the way. Jesus literally embraced kids. Jesus is saying here, kids matter to me. And so... If you're a dad this morning, let me say this to you. Your kids need you. And now I know you know that. This Team World Vision, one of the leaders of Team World Vision, his name's Rich, Here's what he said to me. He goes, my dad was around, but he wasn't around. He goes, I grew up in a family, my dad was around, but he wasn't around. Do you know what that means? Here's what it means. It means that we can be at the moment, but not in the moment. You could be here right now, but you're doing this. That's being at the moment, but you're not here. You're at home, your kids are around you, and you're doing this, or you're doing this. You got a screen in front of you all the time. And I believe that God wants us to be in the moment, not just at the moment in our kids' lives. Dad, some of you need, that's the volume's getting turned up right now. You got to put that phone away you got to put your work away. you got to be there for your kids. My sister just told me this story. I didn't remember it. She goes, you know, Dad didn't come to my graduation when I graduated high school. I'm like, what? Yeah, you know, Mom told me that he said, oh, I went to, I went to mine and my brother's. I've been to two of them. They're boring. I'm not going to hers. My sister is 50-something years old. She still remembers. There's still an ouch there. Because dad wasn't present. Dad was selfish in that moment, right? Our kids need us to be present, to be interested, for us to pay attention, to be dialed into them. Now let me talk to you guys without kids, or maybe you have adult children. I'm an empty nester. I don't have any kids at home, so I'm preaching to the choir right now. There is a generation of young people hey buddy, (laughs) that need spiritual fathers, that need older brothers, that need uncles, that are interested in them, that believe in them, that come alongside them. Every guy in this room has a story. And part of your story, there's some pain. There's some ouch. There's some hurt. There's some neglect. Right? We heard that this morning a little bit. Right? Do you have someone in your life who notices you? An older man? Pays attention to you? Who calls you? Who texts you? Who wants to spend time with you? I got an 80-year-old man in my life, Alan Anderson. He texts me every week. Hey, you got time for coffee? Every week. We grab coffee. He just, man, how are you doing? How's, how's Natalie doing? How can I pray for you? He's mentoring me. It's not formal. He didn't say, hey, can I mentor you? He's just loving me. It's life on life. He's interested in me. He loves me. Sometimes we come and I'm like, oh man, my wife's driving me crazy. And he'll go, dude, I get it. I've been married 60 years or whatever, man. <laughs> you know? And you know what? That helps. It does. It helps. We need each other. And your church family has kids who need you. Let me tell you a couple stories, then I'll close this up. I did a wedding recently for a 32-year-old guy who grew up in Montecito. Montecito is the gated, wealthy community where actually a lot of celebrities live. It's multi-million dollar homes. This kid not at 32 years old. He grew up in a rich family. He, he flew private everywhere. Do you guys know what that means? It means he doesn't go to the big airport. He goes to the little airport where you drive right up and you get on a plane and, and you got the plane to yourself. He flew private everywhere. Here's what he told me. He says, when I was 16, my parents got divorced and my dad, this was the line, he moved out and he moved on. He was 16 years old. He moved out, and he moved on. He said, I spoke to my dad. I have spoken to my dad once since I was 16. And he goes, the conversation went something like this, and I write it down here in quotes. When I left you and your mom, I moved on in my life, and you need to do the same. And that That cuts deep. I moved on in my life. This is a father talking to his son. I moved on in my life, and you need to as well? You know, there's a little kid in that 32-year-old who wants somebody to notice him. It's not money and flying private. He wants someone to pay attention to him? Who wants someone to text him and say, hey, let's go grab coffee. Hey, let's go for a, ro- a hike. Hey, let's go for a swim. Hey, let's go for a bike ride. Hey, let's hang out. Let's go to a ball game. Let's be together. I notice you. I'm interested in you. Who's going to mentor him? If he's in your church, think about That's stuff he's carrying. That's stuff that he longs for. Let me tell you one more story. It's the story of Gary. Gary was a troubled kid. He was legally blind growing up, still is today. Never was able to get a driver's license because he sees about 20% of what the rest of us see. If I see 100%, he sees 20%. So it meant he wore thick glasses as a kid growing up which meant kids picked on him. Kids were mean-spirited to him. So you know what he did? He'd fight. And you know what happened? Gary got kicked out of three high schools. But his father, Gary's father, wanted to teach him how to fight so he could defend himself. And Gary, every day after school, In ninth, 10th grade, he told me this story. He said, I'd go home and my dad would take me downstairs and he'd beat the crap out of me. He says, I only have one kidney because of my father punching me and teaching me to be a man. Gary is my father. Gary is my father. 80 years old. Now there's a quote that a guy shared with me that really touched me. Five years ago, I shared this quote with my dad. I, I had the opportunity. as a privilege. My dad turned 75, and what he wanted to do was he wanted to climb Mount Kilimanjaro on his 75th birthday with me and my brother and sister. My older brother couldn't go, but my sister and I went. There's a photo of us, I think. Uh, got up at midnight to climb. That's us. Um, and... You know, it's not about climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. We made it, and it was awesome, and I was proud of him, and we got pictures at the summit. But on day four of that trip, it was pouring rain, and we were in a tent. And I just decided to share this quote with him. It was a quote that a mentor shared with me, and we have it on the screen. A little boy cries from the wounds of his father. A grown man cries For the wounds of his father. Now some of you are like a deer caught in the headlights going, what does that mean? When I was a little boy, I cried from the wounds of my father when I was mistreated by him, when I was bullied by him. My dad was a bully. My dad said to me over and over and over again, there's two ways to do a job, the right way and the wrong way. And you're doing it the wrong way. That was my message. When I went to Gordon Hess, the counselor who talked about being an initiator of grace, Gordon said, if you were to summarize the message that your father gave you growing up in one phrase, one sentence, what would it be? Actually, that's a great question for you guys to think about. If you were to summarize the message your father gave you growing up as a kid, what was that message? You know what I did? I called my dad and I asked him. I said, Dad, I'm seeing a counselor, and this is the question he asked me. How would you answer that question? And you know what he said? He goes, I don't even have to think about it. I know exactly what the message I sent you three kids. And here it is. Don't F with me. Now just think about the impact of that. That's what I grew up with. A dad whose one message to his three kids is don't F with me. So now, think about this quote. How does a guy become, that's the message you send to your kid? That's not natural. There's a story behind that. That's the point of the quote. A little boy cries from the wounds of his father. But as you get older and you start thinking deeper, you go, there's a reason my dad was that way. Huh. So I'm on Mount Kilimanjaro and I share that quote. I go, dad, what happened to you? What happened to you growing up? Because most dads aren't bullying their kids, and he he beat my brother pretty good. Most dads don't do that. What happened to you? And it was one of the most defining moments of my life. My dad and my sister and I in this tent, pouring rain on Mount Kilimanjaro, and he sobbed. My 75-year-old dad sobbed like a baby and just said, my dad beat me up every day. My dad beat me up So, his dad, see, men, do we want to change the world? (laughs) It's one life at a time. It starts with our own kids, it starts with the kids in our church. Will you go? My dad needed you. My dad needed a spiritual father in his life who loved him, embraced him, was tender with him, believed in him, spent time with him. He didn't have it. And then you could even go to his dad. What dad beats their kid up every day in ninth and 10th grade, right? My grandpa needed a spiritual father who would love him, mentor him, believe in him, right? So that's why I'm going to change the narrative of the Ireland family. And I got a new son. And we're going to build a friendship together and a relationship together in Christ, if he wants that, no pressure, <laughs> but you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to share this story, and, and Garrett and his mom, his, his dad actually left his family when he was nine years old, and I'm going to share this story, I didn't ask you for permission, but I'll ask you for forgiveness, <laughs> <laughs> but we were out to dinner with Garrett's mom, and my wife Natalie and I, and Shannon, we were all out to dinner, and Garrett's mom said this. I am so glad Garrett is finally going to have a father in his life. And Garrett said, me too. Me too. Right? That's powerful stuff, you guys. When we think about where we've come from. And now there are some of you that you're going, oh man, I am that dad. I am that dad. So what's the word to you? What's the word from God to you? It's not shame. It's not guilt. It's not, he's not here to chastise you. He's not, he's here to say there's, today's a brand new day. His mercies are new every morning. Let's go. Maybe you need to be the initiator of grace with your kids after this weekend. Maybe you need to pick up the phone and reach out to them. Maybe you need to say, let's go have lunch. Let's have a conversation. I need to apologize. I need to, I need to ask your forgiveness for the way I mistreated you. Maybe you're estranged from your kids. And God's calling you to put them back in your life. Swallow your pride. Ask for his grace. Maybe some of you are beating yourself up right now as you hear me talk. We serve a God who's the God of second, third, fourth chances. It's never, ever, 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 ever too late. So there's a Hebrew word, selah. We see it in the Psalms. It it means pause and ponder. That's what we're going to do right now. We're going to pause and ponder. What have you heard this morning? Where has God shown up in your heart, in your life this morning? Is it about gathering with other guys? Is it about going first? Is it about embracing kids and saying, I'm going to become a spiritual father? Do you know when I had, we adopted Shannon, by the way, I didn't know how to be a dad. I'd never been a dad before. I didn't take a class on being a dad. You figure it out along the way. Some of you are going, oh, man, I don't have what it takes to be a self-initiating, reproducing, wholehearted follower of Jesus. That's okay. I don't either. And I went to seminary. They didn't teach us that in seminary. They taught us theology and church history and doctrine, but they didn't teach us how to disciple men. You figure it out along the way together, and we're better together. And we need each other, and we help each other, and we spur one another on. So let's bow your heads right now. Let's just take a moment. Selah quiet, pause, ponder. What have you heard? What's your takeaway? Where is Jesus, the Holy Spirit, turning up the volume in your heart this morning? Where do you need healing? So just open your palms in front of you. Just open as a posture of saying, God, I'm open right now. I'm open. And invite the Spirit of God to touch you in the deep places. Father, I just sense that there are men in this room that that need healing from some hurt, from some loneliness, and brokenness. Lord, I I know that many of us have been listening to the lies of what it means to be a real man. Today, you remind us, Jesus, you model for us what it means to be a real man, to be great. And, And I pray that this morning you change us from the inside out. That we would become men who choose to gather together with other men. We'd make that a priority in our life. That we be men that become initiators of grace and we say, yeah, I'm going to go first when it comes to serving my family, sacrificing for my family. And, and Lord, work in us and, and this last one about embracing kids. Yeah, I'm, I'm willing to, to serve in the children's ministry. I'm, I'm willing to embrace my son-in-law. I'm, I'm willing to reach out to my son who I don't feel close to. But, Lord, by your grace, I'm willing to step out. And I trust that your grace will run ahead and that you'll bring healing and reconciliation and you'll warm up the relationship that feels cold right now. might even be with your own father. Hear the cry of our heart. More of you at work in us. Less of ourselves. More of you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, do your work in this room right now. In Jesus' name, amen.